1: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
2: you're listening to the fish untamed podcast your home for fly fishing the backcountry All right, welcome to episode number 30 of the Fish and Tame podcast. Today I'm talking to Chad Williams, and Chad is a guide and manager of Total Outfitters in Southwestern Montana. So his home rivers are the Madison, Missouri, Bitterroot, Blackfoot, probably a lot of names people have heard before. And on this episode, I got a chance to pick his brain about Trout Spay, which is something I haven't gotten to do, but uh, I'm pretty interested in giving it a try at some point. So it was great to hear how Chad uses it on his local rivers and how Total Outfitters is introducing it to a lot of their clients. So without further ado, here is my chat with Chad Williams. I usually just start by getting a little bit of background. Um, So if you just want to start by telling me kind of how you got your start in the outdoors and then also your start at Total Outfitters.
1: So how I got my start into this world of fly fishing, actually started really young. Dad was always, uh, my father was always a bait fisherman, you know, and he took me fishing all the time. And and, uh, I guess it was one day on the bank of the Snoqualmie River, I must have been 11 maybe, dinner 11 we were plunking for steelhead which is basically a big massive weight holding your line down and then like a tagline a foot or two foot long with like a spin and glow and either sh- sand shrimp or or a glob of eggs and he would sit there in his chair and read a book and usually fall asleep waiting for that little jingle bell that he would mm-hmm. hang on the end of the rod and you know it was fun when we would catch a fish but the the time between fish sometimes was very long, and I would get bored. So I took off on a little hike, and there was a guy um, well, probably half a mile downstream that I saw was swinging with a two-hander, uh-huh. and that was really captivating. I was just sitting there watching him and entertaining myself, trying to keep myself from getting bored because Dad wasn't really doing other, anything other than reading and you know, sleeping, and he hooked a fish and I was listening to his old reel just screaming, and so I'm watching this guy fight this fish, and this is back in like, oh man, it must have been like 1981, 82, or something like that, and when he landed that fish, and I was talking to him about it, and he says, oh yeah, fly fishing's the only way to to really respect these fish, of course, I wanted to fly fish, so I pestered my dad, and pestered my dad to get me a fly rod, and he didn't know anything about fly fishing, and he finally took me to Kmart and we bought a, I think it was like a, an eight foot seven or eight weight Eagle claw, you know, for less than a hundred bucks. And, and that was it for me, man. I was, I was, everything I wanted to do was geared around fly fishing and tying flies. I started tying flies at home. um, First with, you know, a pair of vice grips literally duct tape to the table until I finally got my first uh, Thompson a vice and, and since then, that's all I've ever done. I mean, that's all I want to do. Everything's centered around fly fishing. I mean, I hunt and I do all those other things, hiking. I like to get out, Alpine Lakes, but usually a fly rod in the stable somewhere with me.
2: That's funny that you mentioned that vice setup, because that's exactly how I tied my first fly, too. It was like a pair of pliers that I, you know, like clamped down. And then I don't remember how I fashioned it to the table, but it was some sort of pair of pliers attached to a table. And I just tied the most hideous flies when I was when I was little, before I knew anything about fly fishing. I just had seen some flies and I was like, I've got feathers and hooks like I can I can make something like that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I used to I used to hang out at the fly shops in uh, in the I grew up in and in uh, Bellevue in Seattle Washington and watching these old guys tie flies and I'm like I got to do that but I didn't know what to buy I didn't have any money I would go out I would get uh, so my dad was a bait fisherman he had all these I don't know if you remember those uh snail the bait holder hooks Uh that have the little barbs on the shank yeah yeah I had and so I would crimp those down with a pair of pliers and then take some sewing thread and literally it. didn't have a bobbin, didn't know you're supposed to have a bobbin, I just know that you're supposed to wrap it, didn't know where to buy a bobbin. Of course, this was all before the internet. And I'd get chicken feathers out of the barn and, you know, cut off pieces of hair off of my dog and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> they were horrendous. But I finally, I met a, a, a lady and she actually gave me my first fly tying lesson. And I tied a, uh, let's see, I tied a, um, a renegade a uh, woolly worm and a mosquito those were the first three flies i tied and man i just hours and hours cranking those out until i got one that looked like the ones you could see in the shop
2: that's probably the best way to start though just like pick pick one or two patterns and just go for it and oh, yeah, you know i sure. still hear that now you know if you're getting started just find one fly until you can tie it so every fly looks the same and then move on to pattern number two. But it's so tempting to be like, well, you know, I kind of got that one right, but then there's this other pattern I want to try and it's hard.
1: I still have that problem. I've (laughs) I've been tying for, you know, most of my life. And even today I'm sitting here, I'm tying flies for the shop because it's actually faster for me to tie them than wait for them to be shipped to me. So I was tying purple hazes today and I'm like, I kind of want to do a different kind of purple haze. So I'm sitting there kind of tweaking it out. And I realize I've only had, you know, only tied like six flies in an hour because I'm still tweaking it. Right. Oh, come on, Chad, you gotta put some flies in the box. Let's uh <laughs> let's get busy here. <laughs> let's go to work.
2: Yeah, it's hard to keep your mind from like wandering, you know, I I could try this, I could I could edit it this way, I could try this other pattern that's kind of similar. It's it's hard to stay focused.
1: Yeah. I one of the things I like to do with tying is I like to find a pattern, whether it's from a buddy's box or, you know, something that I see commercially tied, and then I like to reinvent it, maybe put my own little flair on it. You know, change mm. the pattern, add C D C or you know oversized the hackler like blending dubbing I really get into uh, my dubbing blends and, and getting you know experimenting with that so that's always fun and that's what's cool about fly tying you can it's a artistic outlet I guess especially for me because I can't even draw stick figure men <laughs> right
2: it's kind of it's kind of the arts and crafts of the outdoor world yeah and I don't I don't do a ton of fly tying I'm not very experienced but I feel like, like what you said, where you just kind of take a, a pattern and tweak it a little bit. I feel like that's gotta be how, you know, so many of the patterns out there were were invented. We're just, you know, there were there were some patterns and then people just started, you know, adding their own flair or changing one thing here or there. And I feel like that's gotta be how, you know, a lot of the patterns today have evolved. And, yeah, that and, and then,
1: you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, you need a specific pattern for a specific water. And so a lot of the patterns in my box, especially the ones that, you know, I take with me when I'm actually guiding are are patterns that I know will work on this section of the river or in this system, you know, and that's one of the unique things about when, when uh, people, when my clients fish with me, they're fishing with my bugs. That's kind of a way that I enjoy it because I know that those fish that are being caught are being caught on bugs that I've tied myself. And so I get a lot of, a lot of enjoyment out of that, a lot of satisfaction out of that.
2: What, what, where are you getting your ideas? Like, are you picking up rocks and just seeing what's under there and and trying to mimic it, or are you you grabbing bugs out of the air?
1: I'm looking for bugs all the time. I'm shaking the trees, I'm grabbing them. I keep a little uh, tub in my fly box in my boat bag, and I'll put flies in there and then take them home at night, or I'll take really close up pictures with them with my phone and, you know, and and just, you know, try to figure out a way to mimic it. Yeah, that's, that's really fun. That's a lot of fun.
2: What what kinds of uh, specific tweaks are you making to your flies? So like if you if you look at a bug under under a rock, let's say, um, and you're comparing, let's just say like a mayfly, and you're comparing it to something like a pheasant tail, like a generic mayfly pattern, what kind of tweaks might you be adding? Color, shape, like what are you adding to your flies?
1: Well, it all depends. You know, like if I see a if I see a bug on the water, you know, first thing I'm looking at is just the general size and color. Okay. And and the patterns that are out there, you know, your parachute atoms is going to cover a lot of the different, you know, mayfly patterns out there. You just got to either increase the size or decrease the size. What I like to do is I like to get a, my dubbing blend, which is just a coffee grinder. And then I take different dubbings and I try to get the color pretty close. And so that's the way I'll tweak it. And then I like to I like to make them buggy. I, I add CDC. Um, I love to I love to tie soft tackles. So I'll do a tandem rig a lot of times with a dry and a soft hackle behind it, you know, so, and those are the ways I kind of tweak it. And then just coming up with, you know, you really don't have to overcomplicate it. You, know, right. you don't, you don't need to, a lot of my bugs, when you look at them, it's like, oh, wow. Well, the bugs in my boat bag are there to, de- are designed to catch fish. The ones I put in a box out in the shop, those are designed to catch fishermen. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) I've heard that before. I've definitely been the victim of it too. And I've been talking about this with with my buddies lately that, uh, you know, I love having a a full fly box. I love going into the shop and just buying, you know, one or two of everything. And then I find myself using the same like five patterns every single time I go out. And most of those flies never get touched. I just like, you know, the feeling of having them in my box and feeling like I'm prepared, but then it's like, well, I'm still probably going to use a parachute Adams yeah, as my first fly, like fifty percent of the time I go out on a lake. You know, it's yeah, just what I'm gonna have, try first.
1: <laughs> got to have confidence in the bug. If you don't have confidence in the bug, you're not gonna fish it well. You're gonna doubt it. The, and the, the key to catching fish on a fly really is yeah, you got to be close to what the fish are eating, but presentation, putting it where the fish are gonna be in a in a manner and in a way that they're gonna eat it. Mm-hmm. You know.
2: Yeah, one, one single split shot has made the difference between getting skunked and catching a ton of fish like on multiple occasions.
1: Absolutely, just... yeah, like with my beads, you know, if I have to put a split shot on, I will, but what I'll do with like a lot of my nymphs is, is um, increase the size of the bead, go from brass to tungsten to a bigger size tungsten, you know, especially on like the Euro nymphs nowadays with the tungsten beads, just the same size of fly, but maybe a bigger bead on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. get, it, get it down there where the fish are.
2: Yeah, when, when I can, I like to use a bead just, just to keep um, the, the line from like hinging around that split shot. I feel like the, the more streamlined yeah. you can have your leader, the better. Absolutely. Um, so I know that's been kind of a movement with the, with the whole Euro-nymphing craze now. Um, get those really heavy flies so you can avoid adding weight to your line. But I still end up adding weight most of the time to my line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just easier for me. Drop
1: shot. I put that lead on the bottom and get those flies above it. So That way you don't have that hinge.
2: Yeah, I have I have uh, tried that once or twice. It's not my go-to, but I've heard a lot of people swear by
1: it. It, uh, it can it can definitely be really effective. I don't like doing it. I'd rather put a heavy point fly down there on the bottom, you know, big pat stone rubber leg or something like that, and then a tag fly above that. And at least for these waters around here in the Bitterroot, it's been highly effective. Very so you'll effective.
2: put... You'll put the heavier fly, the heavier point fly at the bottom, and then some lighter flies up above instead of doing heavy fly and then tying to the, the bend of that.
1: Yeah, for okay. sure. And, unless I'm fishing under a bobber, I mean, if I'm tight line nipping, I will. Um, if I'm fishing under an indicator, you know, it all depends. I'll, I'll vary it up. I'll vary it up. But I, I generally, especially under an indicator, if I've got clients in the boat, I'll put an indicator on and, and, yeah, I might, put, I might put the heavy fly and then off the bend of the hook, the lighter fly. Just depends on, on the situation I'm in. That's the other thing, too, is, man, depending on what the river, you got you to gotta conform to what the river demands, you know. And so having the ability to read the water, to read the client's ability or your own personal abilities is going to dictate what kind of setup you have for the situation. And don't be afraid to change it. A lot of people get in trouble, they don't want to change it out, and they stick with one thing all day long, and they get skunked or they don't catch as many fish as they'd like to. Sit down, look at the water, read the water, understand what's going on, and then, you know, adjust your tactics, of, you know, to what's what the water demands, for sure.
2: Speaking of tactics, I know one of the things you wanted to cover today was um, how the Bitterroot River in your area differs from some of the other rivers in, in the area, um, especially with, like, the dry fly fishing, what uh what tactics are you usually using on like in your specific area and particularly on the Bitterroot?
1: Well, dry fly fishing on the Bitterroot is absolutely amazing. I mean, you can get away with fishing bigger bugs and the the trout eat them. I mean, they do. You can, you know, depending on which section of the river you're in, the the trout are just it's it's funny to me how eager they will respond to a properly presented dry fly. You know, we can we fish size 10, 12, and 14s, and in, uh, in the mayflies pretty commonly, and then your stoneflies, you know, 10, 8, and 6, and pretty generic ones. And if they're not eating those, put on some kind of an attractor with a, with a dropper underneath it, and, and you're going to have a good day. As long as you can put that fly where it belongs, you know, if you're, if you're drifting in a boat, get it down and in front. Get it out in front of the boat. Even right down the middle, a lot of times they're going to take it. If they don't take the dry, they'll take the dropper. But, yeah, it's a, it's an outstanding dry fly fishery. Now,
2: what, what causes that? Why, why the difference between the Bitterroot and, let's say, that like the Madison or, or some of the other well-known rivers in the area?
1: Well, I don't, you know, to compare our river, it's hard to, I don't necessarily like to compare rivers. Each river is unique and special in its own way. What I like about the Bitterroot is it's, you know, it's a very popular river, but we don't get the press that you see the Madison or the Missouri or the Yellowstone get. Which is fine by me. You know, let the exactly, trout go yeah. over there. But we still, we still get a lot of traffic there. There's a, there's a fair amount of pressure on our river, but given that, we still have pretty successful days. You know, really successful days on the water.
2: And you said that uh, Total Outfitters is kind of trying to bring trout spay to the area
1: yeah w- when that, you say that
2: like how are you um bringing it to the area are you just kind of the, the first people to you well,
1: know start using we're definitely, it we're, a lot we're definitely not the first people to trout stay, but it's not very popular here yet what i love swinging soft tackles i love fishing with a two-hander i grew up you know fishing for steelhead with a two-hander and a buddy of mine tim parks and i we just you know about three four years ago we started uh fishing for these trout with with spay rods and of course it's really popular over on the Missouri River and the Madison and the Yellowstone but especially on the Missouri and we're like let's do this at home I think it'll work especially the the middle and lower Bitterroot and the Clark Fork there's there's really interesting water and so you know four years ago five years ago we started swinging for them in earnest and figuring this out and I'll tell you what the Bitterroot River swings I mean it's it's got some very very interesting water and we've had a lot of success. So we started offering trips for them. And, and, and so we're going to kind of uh, move on this. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun and it it's just gives you another opportunity to become a more refined and well-rounded angler, really.
2: So walk, walk me through trout spay. I, I know in theory what it is, um, but I have never used a two-handed rod. Um, and I've done a little bit of swinging, but not really with wet flies, usually with streamers. Um, so, so walk me through, if you had to describe to someone who's never even heard of trout spay, what, what makes it different from like, using a single-handed rod and doing your typical overhand cast?
1: So yeah, you're not doing, you're not doing your overhand false casting. You're, you're creating an anchor point on the water with either a Scandy or a Skagit-style fly liner head. And with that anchor point, you're able to shoot the line across the water, and you can cover a lot of wa- cover a lot of water. And what's unique about spay is you're usually on a tight line, and so when you get that take, it's it's electrifying. It's like a jolt. It's like whoa! I mean, that was definitely a fish, you know. And you're swinging it through the current. Whether you're skating a dry fly, you're in the middle column, or you're you've got a, a heavy mo tip on, and you're getting a, and the and the fly down deeper. So and what's cool and unique about trout spay or spay in general, not just trout spay, but whether you're swinging for steelhead or for salmon or even for trout, it's it's methodical, it's deliberate, you're casting a lot. You, you know, you're casting and you're swinging and you're taking a, a, another step and you're really covering the water thoroughly. And uh, it's, it's very... Um, I don't know. It's it's relaxing. You're you're working on your cast, and it's almost like when you finally do get a hit. It's like an interruption. You know, you you've been sw- you've been you know doing your cast, whether it's a snap tee or a double spay, and that that thing swinging through the water. You might be putting a mend in it. You might be uh, you know doing a wet or a, a grease line technique, and then all of a sudden you get jolted awake, and your your uh, repetition is interrupted with this trout. You never know when you're going to catch a fish. And you kind of have an idea, you're coming into a bucket, and it's like, oh, man, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. And, and oh, it's so satisfying when it does happen. And it's just really, it's another way to, to angle for these fish that we love.
2: Yeah, and that feeling is, uh, that's definitely not unique to trout spay, because I know exactly what you're saying when you see... A run and you're kind of like, a, you know, even if it's a dry dropper, let's say that you're using, and you, you land it right where you wanted to, and you're like, if there's a fish in there, I'm going to catch it on this cast. You know, yep. th- like there's no escape. If it's in there, it's going to eat. If it's not, I can move on. And it, there's just that like really tense moment where it's passing over the spot that you want. So I'm sure that's very similar in trout say so when you're like swinging through a, you know, just a, a perfect run. Um, what what kind of water are you looking for when you're, you know, deciding whether you want to use this technique?
1: You know, typically you're looking for um, a run where you can, you know, riffles and stuff like that and kind of a long stretch of water. And that's the traditional method for trout spay. What makes the bitter root so interesting is that there's all kinds of water that, that we can fish on. We've got some beautiful long runs where you can spend, you know, an hour stepping through the run and, and people that know trout spay will know what I'm talking about. You've got this nice long run you can step through. But when you go up on the upper bitter root, you know, there's a lot of point-and-shoot type type angling where there's fishing inside seams and, and fishing some structure and around boulders. So it it's the diversity, the diversity there. And these fish are really responsive to it, you know, really responsive to a swung fly uh,
2: Expand a little bit on the uh, the stepping because I feel like that's something that might not be obvious to somebody who's never swung a fly and it's like kind of moving downstream with it you know most yeah. people are just gonna be working upstream as they go and they're gonna be casting usually it maybe like a quartering upstream uh yeah, direction so,
1: so with trouts with with any kind of spade technique you're either you know you're making your cast 90 degrees across the water but generally it's you know downstream and you're swinging the water so like swinging you know even with the one-hander when you're skating caddis or you're swinging a uh a soft tackle. It's the same thing with the two hander. You're swinging that that fly through the run, and so the step is basically you're covering that water. And once, once you've covered that water with your fly or your cast, then you take a couple more steps downstream and you make the cast again. So that by the time you're done stepping through a run, you've covered that entire river. And then you know you might have started with a floating line, you know, and you're skating a dry fly. Then you change your tip and you get a little bit lower in the water column and you go back through it again you can spend an entire day on a nice run and cover it thoroughly from top to bottom and from bank to bank.
2: That's one of the the big draws to me when I first learned what, what trout spay, well, I guess spay in general was um, that, and it was really easy to see visually. Uh, I think I had seen it on a PowerPoint or something that um, when you're just like typical single hand fishing, you're kind of just picking a spot casting to it and you'll get a straight line downstream from that point. uh, And that's, that's the area of water you've covered. And then if you cast kind of to the same spot, you're going to get another very similar straight line, and that's the only area of the river you've covered. Um, And the best you can hope for is casting farther or closer and hoping to get enough straight lines that you've kind of covered the water. But if you're casting straight out and then swinging down in an arc, it's covering the entire uh, river from wherever you cast the whole way back to your shore in an arc. And then when you step down, it... It just gives you, you know, you let's say two up, feet that's downstream.
1: That's right. You're picking another section of the water to cover. And, right. you know, I've, I've had them, I've had trout, I've had steelhead take it, you know, within moments, within seconds of the cast, middle of the stream. And then what's, when it gets right to the to the end of the swing, you know, don't let it dangle a little bit. You know, and the other thing too with trout spade, you know, I might swing it through and just let it swing. But then I might twitch it, I might strip it, especially with trout. Like if I'm fishing with streamers in the fall, you know, I'll get more aggressive with it. I'll jig it, I'll strip it a little bit and give it some action, throw some up upstream men's into it. And so you can really change it up. And and that's the cool thing about it is if it didn't work one way, try something else. You know, until you figure out what they're doing. And then it's like, oh, oh holy smokes, I just got bit there. What did I do? Analyze that and then you're learning about it. That's what's really cool about um angling and anglers is they're always wanting to learn more you know you, you spend a lifetime fishing and you think you're out there to catch fish but it's more than that it's cerebral you know and, and i really love that about swinging a two-handed rod is is you've got time to think and process and just immerse yourself in the environment with the fish and everything else you get to know them on a different level you know whether you're nymphing or dry fly fishing or you're you're casting a Euro rod and now trout spay. it's like it's it's just something really enjoyable. It's hard to it's hard to put into words really.
2: It's just satisfying to like you said earlier be a well-rounded angler. Uh, there's techniques I very rarely use, but I like knowing them. You know, just yeah. even just the feeling of knowing that I I have that knowledge there if I want it. Um, and there's there's so many techniques that I have I've never tried or I've only tried a couple times, and it it almost feels like a you know, a missing piece that I'm going to need to fill in at some point. I'm going to need to experience it just so I know, you know, what, what that piece is, um, what, it, what it's like and what knowledge I'm missing out on.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I've, I've been doing this my whole life and I still don't. I, I know a lot about very little and a little about a whole lot. And <laughs> I know a little about a lot of different kinds of ways to fish. And I just like being, well, if there's a new technique or style of fishing, I'm going to be the guy that's going to try it. You know, I, I've got to figure it out and, and enjoy it at all. Enjoy all of it because I just love going out and trying new things and trying new water. And when Tim and I started looking at the Bitterroot from the point of view of swinging it, you know, we didn't see, I, man, I can't, I'm trying to recall if I've ever seen anybody out there with a two handed rod other than myself and just a couple other guys that I, I swing with, I just haven't seen it. So I'm like, let's try it. And man, we were happily surprised. It's turned into quite the blessing.
2: What um, dictates what fly you start with when you're swinging? Because I picture, you know, with a typical dry or nymph or dry dropper setup, you're probably just trying to match the hatch or trying to match some insects you found in the water. And then you're going to dead drift them. So when you're swinging, what what's dictating what you're going to throw on and how you're going to adapt that throughout the day?
1: you're still, you're still matching the hatch. Okay. are still matching the hatch. So let's, let's start in the spring and, and the Bitterroot River is, is world famous for its squalor hatch, right? And, and it's a stone fly that comes out intermittently, depending on the weather and water temperatures and air temperatures and things like that. And most people fish for them either with a, you know, a nymph under an indicator or a dry dropper or the dry. And when, when the, when the squala hatch is coming off and the fish are in on them, there's nothing like it watching them come up and eat that big stone fly. And I've been doing that for years and years and years. And I thought to myself, okay, well, those, those nymphs are crawling. They're not very good swimmers. I wonder if we could catch them on the swing. And so we just tied some, uh, some typical um, squall nymphs, but I put like a soft tackle on them and I was swinging them through the water and I'll be danged if they didn't take that swung nymph, you know, in the middle of a, of a hatch. And so maybe they're not keying in on the dry fly but they're still eating that nymph and swinging that nymph and putting maybe a soft tackle collar on it this is goes back to tying flies modify that fly a little bit and and man we had a lot of a lot of luck swinging for them and then you know in the springtime too so types of flies you know small streamers small buggers thin mints semi seals you know those are the specific type of flies that i'll use and i'll just fish them in the water column with an erratic style um kind of mimicking the the squall and nymph because it's not a good swimmer you know they they like to crawl out on the rocks and when they do get swept away in the current they're going to twitch around so i'll i'll do little one to two inch twitches with my line as it's swinging through kind of mimicking a bug that's been caught in the current trying to get out and it depends on how fast or slow the water is and where you're at in the column but i was i was surprising how effective it was
2: so you're kind of basing how you swing um, on on what kind of fly you have on. So for something like a streamer that might be a bait fish, you might give that more of an actual strip because that bait fish could sure. actually swim. Whereas yeah, if absolutely. you've got a okay, and if you've got a bug that might just be twitching, you'll just give it one or two uh, yep. inch twitches. And then if it's something that would just get swept away, you might just let that naturally swing with the current yes. and let absolutely. it go. Absolutely,
1: yeah, exactly. Okay, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, so so depending on depending on the kind of water you're in, the bug you're fishing. And what the fish are doing. So if you see fish actively feeding on the surface, you know, and I do this with my clients. If they're not eating your your dry fly that you're presenting, a lot of times I'll put a, a soft tackle as kind of a, a tandem rig. And they'll eat that soft tackle when they weren't eating the, the dry fly. And I usually do that. I'll go soft tackle before I put a nymph, like a dry dropper. I'll usually go dry soft tackle and then go dry dropper.
2: So you'll swing the dry flies as well?
1: You can, you can skate them like the October caddis. You can definitely swing dry flies and skate them across the surface. And that's really cool because you get to see them come up on the top and eat it on top. So that's, you know, like the October caddis in the fall. Yeah. I'll swing those dry flies for sure.
2: And how, how do you keep them from just flooding themselves and going under in the current? How, how are you keeping them buoyant and on, on the surface?
1: The tension, of, the tension of the water and the line usually keeps it right up on top. So you're going to use a floating line um, and, and a, a leader that won't sink you know so a dry you know a floating leader and and when you get into trout spade you look at the different kinds of leaders and tippets out there oh my gosh it can it can blow your mind I mean and it's still it's confusing for me sometimes still when you think about the different weights and grains of heads and floating lines and mows sink tips and oh my goodness it, you can get a PhD just figuring that stuff out yeah in fact you probably should get a PhD to figure it out <laughs>
2: So g- give me the 101 on the line and leader, because the line is one of the, um, I don't want to say it's a barrier, but it's it's one of those things that seems a little overwhelming at first, because I think you can kind of explain pretty easily, you know, people, people swing flies with single-handed rods too, but that line difference is, you know, that, that's a big difference between your typical uh, weight line, like a five weight line, a six weight line, and going to grains, even though you can... You know, measure a, a weight line in grains. Uh, you're not re- usually referring to them in grains. You're usually referring to them in a weight. So, so explain the the one zero one version of
1: the <laughs> spay lines. <laughs> so, so you want to match the line to the rod, and then you're going to choose between either a Skagit or a scandy. And it and like a Skagit, you know. And, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert by any means on this, but it, it depends on what you're wanting to do. Like a Skagit, I'll use a Skagit head if i'm casting heavier flies and i need to i need to really shoot that sucker out there far if i'm swinging soft tackles i'll switch i'll switch to a scandy because it's not as heavy a fly you know and i can get that nice tight loop shooting it across the river um so depending on on the fly you're fishing and the water you're fishing you know um, once again we're not we're not false casting you know you're using a snap tee a double spay a single spay you're getting an anchor point that d loop to, to send that out and uh, um, so that'll dictate what fly you're using but really you know it's just about swinging that fly through the water um, you can get away with a lot it's it's learning the cast and it's not something that you're going to take a rank beginner with and go out and say okay we're going to do this this is this is developmental and it's, it's going to take a while to figure it out but once you've done it oh my gosh it's addicting it's addicting. <laughs> I'm getting ready to go to to Washington to swing for some steelhead here in about oh eight or nine days. Let's see, August twenty, August eighteenth. So next week, <laughs> coming and, up. And, and and all I can think about right now is is just getting out there and stepping through a run and and hoping hoping for a tug, hoping for a bite. You know.
2: Yep. So, so go even even more 101, and c- can you just explain the difference between a Skagit and a Scandi?
1: So a Skagit's going to have a shorter head, okay? Okay. And it's going to have a, a, a lot more aggressive taper on it and a shorter head, so it's really compact. A is going to be a lot longer, and it's going to have a taper that kind of, you know, skinny at the, at the front where the leader's at, it'll get fatter, and then it'll taper back down. So it's made for different ways of presenting the fly, in relation to the water, a skagit's going to be um, the taper's going to be a lot more pronounced towards the front where the where the leader is, and you know you can get a really powerful cast and just send that sucker a lot farther. So if I if I've got if I've got a cone head or a heavier streamer, you know I generally go to a Skagit because I can really send that sucker out there. If I've got lighter flies like a, a small you know pheasant tail soft tackle, then I'm going to switch to my scandy my scandy line.
2: Okay, and what would be the downside of using that kind of burlier line that you'd normally use for a streamer to get it way out there? Like, What what would be the downside to using that with something like a smaller fly that doesn't really need it, but is it going to hamper you or like it, hinder it, your casting?
1: Yeah, it could. It, it, it definitely could. I mean, and this is where it gets super technical, and, and man, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about that, but you definitely want to match the, the line to the rod and then the line to the conditions and the style of fly that you're going to be fishing. So if, you, if you're if you fishing big intruder patterns, you know, big heavy flies, you're going to need it a lot more robust or stout, heavier heavier, um, a line to get it out there.
2: And how about leaders? Is that going to be pretty similar to what you'd use for, you know, any given fly on a single-handed rod, or is the, the leader setup a little different as well?
1: So, so the leader's going to change depending on like the depth that you want to fish. So like the Scandi line or the Skagit line, they're going to float and then you're going to attach um, your tip to that. And the tip can be uh, a floating tip to like a hovering tip. that's going to be just maybe a couple of inches below the surface to faster sink rates. It might sink one foot per second, two foot, you know, a real fast sink, extra fast sink to then your real big, heavy mows where you can take a fly that's not weighted, but get it down there at the depth you want based on the type of, of tip or leader that you put on. And then off that tip, then you put your leader, you know, four or five feet of, of whatever it is you you're using, whether it's, you know, 5x for like the really small soft tackles, all the way up to your 20, 30 pound test, you know, running Maxima Chameleon or something like that for steelhead and salmon.
2: Okay. So, not too far off of how you'd normally pick a leader, but, yeah. um, okay. Yeah. And and what about rod weights? Because that was something that I remember was a little confusing to me that, you know, I've, I remember hearing that, you know, a standard trout spay rod weight might be something like a three weight, even though a yeah, three so weight like would for, not be used for big trout.
1: So for trout spay, you know, uh, Echo makes a great trout spay in three and four weight, you know, so I, I like the three and four weights in trout spay. And then, you know, the bigger the fish, you know, the bigger the rod you're gonna need. You know, on 11, 12 footers, you know, your your rods are usually longer. So uh, three and four weight rods are, are great for trout spay. Um, yeah. yeah, <laughs> Kinda, it, I'm just, my mind's just going through all the different rods I have and what I have for, it really depends, like once again, looking at the river you're going to, the species you're after, and the types of flies that you're gonna use will dictate the arsenal so I, I have a quiver of rods that that i use but for like here on the Bitterroot river you know a trout stain, a three or four weight you know 11 12 footer is going to be is going to be what you're going to put in your arsenal for for the local waters here
2: so generally it's going to be a little bit uh like smaller weight than what you'd use for a single-handed rod um, yeah maybe like a what would, would five to three weight be like a, a rough conversion of like fish that you'd normally use a five weight rod single-handed would translate is, is there any sort of I, a comparison I guess, like yeah
1: that? yeah i guess because i mean the trout spays you can get down to ultralight trout spay rods and, because you don't want to you don't want a big 12 weight you know on 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 the bitter root that like you would use for like king salmon or something like that i mean sure. yeah you could cast on it but you know you want to feel that fish too so yeah you're gonna you're gonna come down to a lot to a lot lighter uh rods for trout spay for sure
2: now this might be kind of a, a novice question, but when, when people refer to trout spay, is there anything different from regular spay apart from the fact that you're fishing for trout with gear that's generally weighted for trout? Or is there is there any noticeable difference apart from the type of flies you're using and the type of rod you're matching to
1: that or is I think the techniques, the casting techniques are the same. Okay. Yeah, you're just you're instead of doing it for like Atlantic salmon or, you know, regular salmon or steelhead you're just you're just using this technique that it was made popular you know in scotland and and things that they were using out on the pacific coast for for steelhead now we're doing that but we're targeting trout and so everything's kind of modified down to this specific animal you know rainbow trout cutthroat and brown trout
2: yeah, because I, I always hear people say trout spay, but a lot of the time those people are saying it in a context where I'm like, well, obviously you're fishing for trout, you know? <laughs> if, yeah. if you're if you're here in Colorado and you're spay casting, uh, you're obviously not doing it for steelhead, so I, I would assume it's trout, but people still yeah. put that trout in front of the word spay just to, yeah, I wasn't sure if there was any other any other differences or, or why and they're you, specifying trout you know, spay. No, like
1: I said, it's, it's specific. You know, like I said, going back to the way I do it here, is, is when I walk when I step through a run, I usually just let it swing at first on the surface. And then I start changing it up as I change the fly to where I'll put some twitches into it, where I'll do a strip with it or something like that. And, and it's a little, I guess maybe trout spay. The difference would be it's, it's more diverse. You can do a lot more, you know, um, at least I do. I, I change it up. I get, I get pretty aggressive in figuring out what I need to do to catch these fish and I, I get a lot more dynamic and, and changed change my, my whole approach to the river, whereas, like, when I go over to the Clearwater in Idaho for steelhead, you know, it's it's pretty consistent all the way through the run. I'm going to do the same thing all the way through the run.
2: Okay. And I assume because you're, you're showing up with a, you know, very specific setup, specific rod, specific line, things like that, that you need to decide before you get there that you're going to be spay fishing
0: spay yeah. casting like you're not
2: it's not like when you get there and you're like oh i was going to fish dries but it doesn't look like the rising so i'm gonna i'm gonna rake up a nymph rig like you need to come in kind of with that that plan it's not something oh, you decide man. on the on the fly
1: when I, when i really got into spay fishing so back when i was a lot younger i mean it was about catching the fish that's what we all want to do we want to catch fish and when i started learning how to spay you know, I'd bring my spay rod with me, but I always grab my nymph rod just in case because I wanted to catch a fish, you know, that was the goal at the end of the day was to catch a fish. And when I was younger and less patient, you know, I'd start out with trout spay or I'd start out with the spay and I'd swing through a run and nothing would happen and I'd get frustrated and I'm like, dang it, I want to catch fish. And I'd go back and I'd bobber up and, and I'd nymph the run and I'd catch a steelhead or whatever it was that I was after. And, you know, um my mentors were telling me, if you want to catch a fish on the spay, leave everything else at home. And that was a tough day. When I did that, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to touch a nymph rod this year. You know, this fall it's just going to be nothing but trout spay. And I'm going to learn how to do this consistently. And then it's not, then all of a sudden your fishing becomes angling and it's not necessarily about catching the fish rather than it is immersing yourself in this nuanced way of approaching nature, you know, and, and yeah, you're not gonna, I mean, you can go an entire season and only maybe touch one or two fish and, and call it successful. Last time, you know, we had, we had a poor run on the clear water last year, but the year before that, I mean, and I didn't get out as much as I would have liked, but I went three days and, and touched four fish and had one positive hookup but that four days I didn't put one fish to hand. I didn't land a fish, but I came away so relaxed and so fulfilled and anxious to get back out there and do it again, because you never know that. I think that's a cool thing about it. You never know when you're going to catch a fish and when it does happen, it's, it's like it's an interruption to what you were doing and it's startling and it's so thrilling. And the same thing, I was over on the mo last fall and I'd been swinging the whole day, nothing, nothing, nothing. And I thought about it. I'm like, man, I could just put a nymph rig on and I know I'm going to catch some fish. I says, nope, I'm going to leave the, the nymph rods in the truck. I walked up the, these railroad tracks. I stepped into this run that I had floated over earlier in the day. And this was right before dark. And I'm swinging through the run, swinging through the run. And I was actually looking across the way at um, this house. that was like way up on the side of the hill. And I make my cast, and then I, I kept looking at that house and how cool it would be to live on that house. And all of a sudden, I got bit, I had this fruit roll up on, and all of a sudden, I got bit, and it just completely startled me. It's like almost scared me. I'm like, holy smokes, that was a fish. You know, and I, I fought it, brought it in, I was looking at it, and I was like, that was pretty cool. And what did I do that last time? And I sw- stepped through the run again, and I caught another one. And holy smokes, I landed four in a row in about 45 minutes, and that was just like, the best part of the whole trip. Didn't catch very many fish, could have caught a lot more if I have stayed on the Nymph Rig all day, but those four fish that day were probably the most exciting fish of the whole season.
2: Now, do of you know what you changed? Or, or, like, did you did you make a connection between I I changed something on this cast and now I can do that for the following cast? Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. It was a little, it was, a, you know, I can't remember what it was specifically that day, probably a little twitch or maybe it was a downstream mend. To give it a more aggressive swim. Uh-huh. Maybe it was maybe it's an upstream mend that makes it drift not so aggressively. You know, what kind of tip did I have on? You know, what was the size of the fly? All those things come into bear and you just think about it and you analyze it. And so, like right now, in anticipation of this trip that's coming up in a week, I'm just thinking, okay, when was the last time I was on this water? What heads were I using? What flies do I need to tie? So you come way over prepared. You almost, it's like you overcomplicate it, but then when you get out there, it's super simple. You don't bring a lot of stuff when you're swinging for fish. I mean, a couple different liters, a spool of, of tippet and a handful of flies, and that's it. And your flask of whiskey to toast the fish when you of do- Of course. Catch. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You know i i know what you mean that um sometimes it's you're almost panicking thinking back what what did i do on that one because you you kind of stop paying attention if you if you're kind of losing hope you feel like you're not catching anything you might not catch anything you start to your mind starts to drift and then you do hook something and suddenly you're you're panicking thinking back like what did i do i i had a moment um about a week ago on just a pond i was just catching bass and bluegill and um they just weren't weren't cooperating, and then I was just dragging my dry fly back in, and it was kind of, you know, maybe an inch below the surface, and suddenly I got a hit, and I was like, oh, so I, you know, I just started dragging my dry fly an inch into the surface, and I was catching fish every single cast, and it's just, it's one of those things where you're like, I can't believe that making a small change before I had been throwing a, a nymph and stripping it back in, but now that I've got my dry fly that's sitting right below the surface, this is what they want
1: yeah it's like and, light bulb right. sudden, yeah you just you had that aha i tell my students in class you just had that aha moment and you can see it when the kids are learning it's like all of a sudden the light bulb comes on it's like oh wow i actually got through to them same thing man fish fish are the best teachers they can teach you so much if you're observant you pay attention and and that's what's cool about well, all kinds of fishing it doesn't have to be Trout bay i mean or or any kind of it's just the whole aspect of becoming an angler you know when we can spend our whole lives and we looking for fish and we realize that fishing is more than just catching. It's, it's learning about who you are and your relationship to this world. What I love about fishing is you can put the politics aside. You can put the troubles of the world aside and, and just go in and, and I think, man, if everybody were to take up fly fishing in the world, I think it would lead to world peace and we wouldn't have all the hangups that we have. Let's get people out there fishing. Maybe even not just fly fishing, just fishing in general, because nature has a way of healing itself and healing the people there, you know, and I enjoy that about my job and and this career is you, you make relationships with people from diverse backgrounds. It's really awesome.
2: I've heard that from a lot of people that the, you know, they use fly fishing to kind of escape you know, whatever stress they've got going on, be at work or or home stuff, because when you're fishing and especially when you're like what we're talking about, where you're kind of forcing yourself into a new technique that requires all your attention. um, And even just, even if you're using a technique that you've used a thousand times, you still have to put a hundred percent of your focus on what you're doing. And it's really hard to be worrying about, you know, that bill you have to go home and pay. If, if you're, you know, focusing on learning a new technique and thinking, you know, what is this fish doing? What What does it want? What do I need to do to get it to to want my fly, um, you can't really think about multiple things when when that's going through your head.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a it's a way to find some tranquility in a chaotic world. And and life, you know, our society is so busy now with with so much information. We have an information overload. I mean, kids are into their devices and everything else. But you know, one of the things I do in my classes, and, and I'm really fortunate to teach where I do. I my classroom literally is 15 minutes from the river and I will take my my class down to the river and sometimes they'll put on a casting demonstration or hook a fish. And those kids the classroom management is really cool because that moving water and the environment, I mean i'm fortunate to have that I know that i'm very blessed to be able to teach here in Western Montana and and really have the river 15 minutes from my class, but. If we could get people aware of the natural beauty of our environment. It, it's really healing. It's really healing. So if you get an opportunity to go fishing, man, or just to get out into nature at, at, in any capacity, even if it's a park, take advantage of that because it's gonna it's gonna heal your soul for sure.
2: Being around uh, kids, what grade do you teach?
1: I teach seventh grade, Montana okay. history. Yep.
2: So uh, being around you know younger people, uh, maybe not you know super young children, but younger people in general, especially that age, is probably you know on their devices a lot. Do you think it's harder today to convince kids to to want to go out and, and explore these things, especially as, you know, so many people are now growing up in, in cities where it might not feel as accessible to, to get outside and take up something like fishing or hunting or hiking or any of these things?
1: Well, I sure hope not. I sure hope not. Um, with with the information age that's out there, it's more available to see it. I mean, all you got to do is YouTube fly fishing. You can find thousands and thousands of videos. Um as to the question of, of whether or not it's more difficult or not, I guess that's a, you know, based on your geography, really. You know, I know that inner city kids and urban kids aren't gonna have the same opportunities as those kids that are in more rural areas. But like in, in my classrooms, you know, even though we're in a very rural area, they're still on their devices. And so I've, I've taken my passion for the outdoors and for fly fishing and kind of incorporated it into my classroom. So like when the kids are, are taking a test, you know i'll pull out my vise and set it on my desk and i'll just start tying a fly and these kids are like what's mr williams doing you know and i says, well hurry up and finish your test and then when when everybody's done with their test if there's time at the end of class you know we'll we'll crank out a pattern and i put my document camera up there and i i display it on the screen and we're sitting there we're tying flies and and the kids are absolutely fascinated by it so I introduced them to that in the classroom. And I'll tell you what, the next thing you know, these kids are wanting to go fishing. They're wanting to learn how to tie flies. They're asking me questions. And all of a sudden now there's an avenue for them to to go away from that. And it was funny when we, when we had to shut down last spring and do the whole online learning, Mm -hmm. you know, I asked my principal, I said, Hey, can I do some virtual field trips? So I took a camera and I went out on the river and and I sat there on the banks of the river and taught these lessons. And I'll tell you what, those kids were so engaged because of the surroundings I had. We got to get our kids outside. Absolutely. Got to get the kids outside and enjoy nature.
2: Yeah, I think maybe maybe the answer is is instead of trying to convince people that they need to go outside, you know, kind of just, I don't want to say force them into it in a negative way, but, but just put it in front of them. Because like you said, you pull, you pull out your vice and everyone wants to know what you're doing. And I, I heard someone mention once that, you know, you've got a, a room full of kids, and you can have as many toys in the room as you want. But if you bring a puppy in, all the kids want to play with the puppy. Like it does not Absolutely. matter what they're doing; they want to play with that puppy. And it's you know, I I feel like that's kind of the case with with anything like this, where if you put something in front of them that is more engaging than whatever they want to do, you know, play on their phone or whatever, um, that's the way to get them you know, involved versus just saying, Hey, you need to go outside. You know, that's, that's not appealing.
1: Take some time and invest in these kids, you know, and, and kids are naturally curious. They want to know. And when you do something that's, that's uh, interesting or unique, they're going to, they're going to perk up and they're going to look and they're going to watch, you know, and I've, and I've been tying flies in front of my kids for 10 years now. And whenever I bring that vice out, Oh man, they, they just, they focus in. They get their work done, and there's a reward. And I put them on the vise and and let them tie some bugs. And and they want to see YouTube channels and YouTube videos and all that. I go, well, go make your own YouTube channel and, and crank one out. <laughs> my my nephew um, actually ties flies for me, for my shop, you know. And I, his nickname's Buddha. And we've got this little corner called Buddha's Bugs. And and uh, so Aiden ties flies for for the shop, and he's 14 years old. And he got interested in this by watching people tie flies and, and, and fly fish. And so, you know, there's another one he's done for, you know, the rest of his life, but he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on his phone other than texting me and sending me videos. Hey, how does this pattern look? How does that look? And he's always pestering his dad, my brother. Hey, will you take me fishing. We take me fishing. We take me fishing. You know, that's a, that's a great, I mean, I'm like, there we go. That kid's going to turn out.
2: (laughs) You know that's something that my boyfriend and I have talked about before, and he always brings up because he, you know, he does a lot of things outside with me. Um, but he grew up kind of a computer kid. You know, he he loved computers. Um, but he he always stressed that he what he what he valued about that was that he was always doing something creative. You know, he was he was playing on Photoshop or something, and and there's. There's a difference between are you just scrolling through social media or are you watching videos or reading articles about something that interests you? Like, there's two different ways to use technology, and one is just mindless and and doesn't really serve any purpose, while the other, you know, if it's used correctly, can be, you know, can can spark new interests or, or, you know, unleash creativity or anything like that.
1: Yeah, YouTube can be a cool thing. I use it all the time when I'm looking for a different way to tie a pattern or a bug or a blend or, you know, oh, yeah, absolutely. Technology is is an incredible blessing for knowledge, but sometimes it can be, like you said, just redundant and mindless and useless. You know, I, I would love to get the kids outside more often. I want to see kids with scuffed up elbows and knees, you know, and and splinters in their fingers, you know, and they come home and they've got this cool story, you know, and and oh yeah, if we can get if we can get more kids outside and picking up any kind of outdoor activity the the world's going to be a better place for sure
2: i i saw in the document that um you sent over before we started that one of the things you really enjoy talking about is is becoming an angler and and what that means do you want to expand on that a little bit and just you know what does that mean to you for someone to become an angler and and what it means to to anybody to become an angler
1: yeah that's a that's a deep topic um an an angler is somebody that appreciates the environment. It's going to conserve the environment and is out to better themselves, you know, within this sport called fly fishing, you know, and I'm just going to use, and it could be anything that you're doing, but angling specifically, an angler is somebody that, that tries to learn as much about it as he can, but realizes he's never going to learn at all. You know, I've been fly fishing and tying flies for, 45, oh, 40 years, and I'm by no means an expert. Some people might call me or give me that title expert. I don't like that because an expert kind of means, or like a master, that means you've learned it all. An angler realizes they haven't learned it all, and they are on a quest, you know, for self-fulfillment and betterment. And, you know, just sitting in the river and, going through your fly box and trying to match the hatch and looking at it all, taking it all in. You know, we recently had, um, an event here on the Bitterroot where, you know, a bunch of anglers went out and they cleaned up the river, you know, those guys are anglers because they're thinking about the environment and everything else. And then the guy that decides that, you know, he's going to get really good at one way of fishing and and maybe he's a dry fly purist the dry or die, you know, those guys become anglers, but they also respect the other people as well. So it's a, It's a way of, I don't know, enlightenment, I guess. Uh, To me, an angler is somebody that just really respects and appreciates everything there is about this sport and not just out there for, you know, um, counting the numbers, you know, how many did I get? Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate is when the people come out and at the end of the day, they've heard some good stories, they've seen some terrific country, we've caught some fish, we've had some experiences together. And whether they caught a fish or not or caught a bunch of fish or a few fish, it's not necessarily just catching the fish. That's not what you define success as. To me, a successful day on the water, whether it's by myself, with friends or with clients, is those people come away more edified, more fulfilled than they were before they got there. And then they learn something. And to me, also, when I'm out with clients or friends or anybody, I want to learn something every single day. You know, and that's my goal is to learn something new, either about myself, about the fish, the technique. It doesn't matter. I'm constantly striving to learn. And I, and I, I take a very humble approach to fly fishing and angling because I know that there's so much out there. There's somebody better than me out there. I, there's, there's always somebody better. And if you're humble enough to learn from anybody and everybody, even little children, then you're going to become a better human being for it. And I think angling... And anglers are those people that strive for that
2: i'm very wary of the people that um like you said w- when you get called an expert it makes you uncomfortable i'm very wary of the people who aren't uncomfortable when they're called an expert or professional or, or something like that um i've definitely been called things that i'm like i you know i i don't want that title because it, it almost feels like too much pressure um, and I think the people who welcome being called an expert are are often the ones who have who've decided to stop learning, and they're they think that they've reached the the pinnacle, yeah. you know. And and it doesn't sound very fun to feel like I'm I know everything, you know. What fun is it if you already know everything?
1: Yeah, it's good to be confident, but it's not good to be arrogant. If that makes sense. I mean, when I go out on the river, I I go out with the intention that I'm going to catch, especially steelhead. Like my, my intention is to go out there and catch a fish and do everything right. and I'll be rewarded. But at the end of the day, if I don't, I come away with some knowledge and I'm satisfied, you know, but I do, you have to fish with, if you want to catch fish, you got to fish with confidence, you know, and I, and I tell my clients that we're Hey, we're going to come up into this run and this is what we're going to do. And be confident in the fly and the bug and your abilities and it'll happen. And if it doesn't happen, well, what do we do next time? You know, and, and it's still a victory, even if you don't get that tug, we still have a great day.
2: I was talking to somebody recently, and we, we were talking about how humbling it is when you're skunked on your home river. <laughs> like, when when you're skunked on a, on a river you've never been on before, um, it's it's one thing. And you're like, okay, well, you know, I, d- I don't know the bugs here. I don't know what works. I don't know the good runs. But when you go to your home river that you catch fish on every single time and you get skunked, there's a moment of of like almost panic where you're like, do, do I actually know this river as well as I thought I did? <laughs> and and I always feel like that's a healthy thing to feel. You know, everyone should have that feeling at some point where they suddenly question if everything they know is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> just because it puts you in your place a little bit.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we, Mother Nature has a way of, of humbling you no matter what. I mean, I've, I've had days on the water where it's like, I'm just begging for a white fish to eat this nymph so this client of mine can at least catch one fish. I've had those days. And then I've had days where I've, you know, it's just like everything I do is perfect and I'm catching fish no matter what. But no, I, yeah, you can, you can definitely get your butt kicked on your home water for sure. That's, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you said that because it happens to all of us.
2: It doesn't. No one wants to admit it. You know, like if I, if I tell people I'm going fishing and they know where I'm going and I come back and I haven't caught anything, I almost like, I want to like slink away to another room. Like no one <laughs> asked me how I did, you know, <laughs> I don't yeah. have to share, but yeah, we
1: all, we all have those days for sure. Yeah. Hopefully they're fewer than not.
2: <laughs> right. Right. It's it's a, it's a, an important feeling for everyone to feel, but not something that should be felt all the time. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, if we didn't catch fish, we probably wouldn't do it. It's it's that occasion that we do that keeps us coming back because you're connected to another living, another life, you know, another 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 uh, entity. You know, I, I when I catch fish on the salmon or the Clearwater River, I'm just so humbled by these fish that have come hundreds and hundreds of miles from the Pacific Ocean and and crossed all these dams and avoided the nets and the predators and and everything else to to meet me, you know, and so I introduced myself to the fish in some kind of almost spiritual manner. It's like, I can't believe this fish made it all the way up here. And then I'm the one that caught him. And it's just, it's, there's so much reverence and respect. I'm just like, all right, dude, and you got to keep them wet. Got to keep them wet. Got to keep them cold, man. Respect those fish because they deserve it. Absolutely.
2: Well, that's, that's a a good note to end on. I think a good thing to leave people with. Um, but before we uh, finish up, do you just want to talk a little little bit um, about Total Outfitters, where you guys operate out of, what kinds of trips you offer, things yeah, like so, that?
1: So Total Outfitters, we're a complete fly fishing shop here in Lolo, Montana. Um, we do guided trips for, you know, along the Bitterroot River, Clark Fork, Blackfoot, and Missouri Rivers. Um, and we cater to, to all types, you know, whether you're the the brand new fly fisherman that needs to learn how, or you're the seasoned angler that... That knows what he wants we're going to cater to that um, of course we're introducing trout spay but uh, yeah uh, you can find us on the web at www.total-outfitters.com or email us at info@totaloutfitters.com. at um, we're on instagram and facebook you know find us and and we'll figure out what you need and we'll take you out for a trip of a lifetime man
2: yeah and i can i can attest to the fact i haven't fished all those rivers but i fished a couple of them and Boy, that was, that was one of my favorite trips I've taken up to Montana, just kind of hitting, hitting all those rivers. They're all so different, but, um, you know, the landscape's just beautiful. The fish are beautiful. Um, and it, is it Montana that doesn't stock? Like, all these fish are wild?
1: Oh, yeah, they're wild. Yeah, all the fish in the rivers that we fish. I mean, you might find some planted fish in some lakes and, and reservoirs or ponds or stuff like that, but, but all of the rivers here have, have native wild fish. Native and that's just
2: such out. a nice treat.
1: Oh, yeah, you know. it's, it's, so, it's so awesome. They're healthy because of it. They're, they're healthy because of it.
2: And you can tell, you know, that there's just something, you know, even if it's not a native fish, just catching something that you can tell, you know, has spent its whole life in that in that river. Um, there's just something different to
1: it. Yeah, it's like the nickname says, you know, Montana is the last best place, man. It really, <laughs> it really is. Montana is the last best place.
2: Uh, right, that's awesome. Chad, um, I really appreciate you coming on and, and wish you the best of luck in upcoming school year and upcoming – upcoming fishing trips i hope but uh, <laughs> i hope things go smoothly for yeah, you, among, you in these crazy times
1: you too. It was enjoyable.
2: all right and that is all as always if you liked what you heard i'd love for you to go over to apple podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe there uh, if you've got a couple extra minutes a rating or review would also be much appreciated it doesn't take too long and it makes a big difference on my end you can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com in addition to fly fishing articles every two weeks. And you can find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert, on Go Wild or at Fish Untamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. Bye, everyone.